we expect to invest something like $50 billion over the next 10, 10 years or so in the clean energy space, and uh, hydrogen is going to be a key part of that. So some companies view it as an existential issue. Um, we, we kind of view it as a growth opportunity. Dear listeners, welcome to this week's episode of the Hydrogen Innovators. Hydrogen Innovators is a podcast series is produced by the Semford Hydrogen Initiative, where we spotlight bold innovators in hydrogen, all the way from academia to industry. Our podcast can be found as Hydrogen Innovators, both on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I am Karen Bechts, a recent Stanford MBA graduate, entrepreneur, and innovation strategist at the initiative. And I am really excited for our conversation this week. Because today we have the privilege to welcome David Burns. David has a PhD in chemical engineering and an MBA and has multiple decades of experience in chemicals and gases. Uh, he currently is a vice president of clean energy at Linden and he's also a founding member of the World SEC Hydrogen Advisory Board. Seems like he has a lot of experience for a valuable conversation about hydrogen and all things related to that. So David, uh, welcome to the Hydrogen Initiative podcast. No, thanks, Karen. It's great to be here. Look forward to the conversation today. So to set the stage, it has been in the hydrogen business for over 100 years now, right? Sometimes yep. people forget. Uh, there's a lot of buzz around hydrogen today, but hydrogen has been around for a long time. And so yeah. it has a lot of experience with gray or natural gas-based hydrogen. Now, you specifically lead the efforts when it comes to clean hydrogen. Reading project announcements, uh, I read everything from electrolyzers, so green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, and even hydrogen-powered ferries, so specific applications for hydrogen. So it seems like it is really very active across the value chain. Can yeah. you provide us a little bit of an overview uh, on, on what's going on at Linda related to clean hydrogen? Sure. You know, as you said, Lindy's been involved in hydrogen for over 100 years. Um, you know, we've built that into a $3 billion business today. You know, so we have a, you know, about 99% of that is what is called gray, uh, a little bit of clean hydrogen. But we've built this kind of uh, business uh, around hydrogen. Um, for the most part, goes into clean fuels. I guess what was called clean fuels, which is low sulfur diesel, et cetera. Um, clean fuels is a different connotation now. But over the uh, last couple of decades, meeting low, low sulfur diesel, et cetera, uh, required a lot of hydrogen. Before that, you know, hydrogen was a key feedstock in a lot of chemical applications, etc. So over the years, we've built um, you know quite quite a quite a strong business around hydrogen. Um, um, we've got some you know, key key strongholds such as in the U.S. Gulf Coast, in Europe, in Asia, etc. Um, so we've been what we've been looking at more recently is uh, you know hydrogen seems to be a great uh, way of um, helping decarbonize. You know, we we all obviously heard a lot about renewable energy and how we should use we should electrify everything as much as possible, and we agree with that. There's some applications where you can't uh, can't do that. So we think hydrogen has a key role in helping decarbonize, for one of a better word, these hard to abate sectors. And so we've been kind of pivoting away from the old grey hydrogen, and we're now moving into what we call clean hydrogen. And you know, we obviously talk about grey and blue and green. To some extent, we're trying to get away from the colors. And so it's a, it's a good handle to help describe where the hydrogen is coming from. But really, the key thing is what's the carbon footprint? What's the carbon intensity of that hydrogen? So, you know, we're focused um, particularly uh, 
as a way of getting started very quickly at scale. We're, you know, we're doing a lot of projects around blue hydrogen, which is essentially gray hydrogen with carbon capture and sequestration, where we kind of build out the technology and the experience with the electrolyzers to be able to make green hydrogen. So we're moving forward on both fronts, but um, some of the bigger projects, all the bigger projects have been these blue hydrogen projects. The good thing is we can build off our you know, decades of experience with hydrogen, been handling it safely, using it, um, transporting, etc. We can build off that experience and also build off a lot of the infrastructure and the technologies and the equipment we build up to support our existing business. We can use that to really get a jump start when it comes to uh, moving quickly into clean hydrogen. And, uh, you know, with the beginning of a very rapid ramp up, we expect in, in demand for clean hydrogen you know, over the coming decades. And it's a key, a key aspect, I think, of most uh, decarbonization plans, most, um, uh, you know, rely on a hydrogen, as I said, filling those gaps that you can't electrify using hydrogen there. So um, we think we've got, again, that, that background, the capability, the infrastructure in place, the capability of, of using and handling it safely. We're going to take that experience and then use that to help kind of catalyze and really move forward very quickly into the clean hydrogen space. So I'm kind of excited to what's going to come in over the next over the coming decades. We've had a long history, and we're going to continue to have a long well, well it's going to be quite a long future. But uh, um, you know, we, we think we're going to be a key leader in hydrogen going forward here as well, clean hydrogen. How does that play out? Is the mm. this a completely new business unit, or how does the clean hydrogen um, efforts how do they link to the legacy hydrogen business at Linda? Yeah, I mean, it's not really a new business. It's just more of a new focus. So we, you know, we're using the experienced individuals, uh, you know, technologies, operators, um, etc., designers. We can use those same people um, to help us pivot from grey hydrogen, if you like, the old business, to this clean hydrogen in the future. So we can use the same people, um, same same capabilities, same infrastructure, etc. So it's really the same business. It's just the focus is changing. Um, you know, what we say is, um, you know, to some extent, we're agnostic to the to the color of hydrogen that customers want. Um, but, you know, to be honest, customers are looking for clean hydrogen today. So, um, you know, we, we're seeing that's where all the activity is. That's where all the project development work's going on. And that's where customers are demanding that, uh, you know, uh, that we work with them to create, uh, you know, the, the lowest cost clean hydrogen solutions we can. So the elephant in the room is, how we will transport our hydrogen, right? Yeah. Uh, one of the most negative gases in the world. Linda knows a thing or two about transporting gases. Yeah. Uh, what do you see as most effective transportation methods for, for hydrogen? Yeah. Around the world, we have about a thousand kilometers of pipeline, pure hydrogen pipelines today. Um, so we always think for large volumes, the best way of moving hydrogen is, is as a gas in a pipeline. That's, that's probably the simplest and most efficient economic way of moving hydrogen at volume. Um, as as we look at some of these new applications, particularly in mobility, there'll be more kind of small, discrete um, demand points for hydrogen. Um, and unless you're lucky enough to be next to a pipeline, you need some way of getting smaller volumes to to these sites economically. Um, alternatively, you, know, you could build an electrolyzer, say, at, at a small site as well. But we, we what we feel is the best way of doing it is is liquefying it. Um, using using um, trucks and potentially rail cars to move um, hydrogen um, over the 500 kilometer, 1,000 kilometer range by truck. 
So we see cryogenic liquefaction of hydrogen being one of those key ways of moving hydrogen regionally um, where there's not the pipeline infrastructure in place. Um, We think um, eventually we'll start to see you know, transcontinental movement of hydrogen as liquid as well, but that's maybe a decade or more away. These a lot of new technology investment in in new uh, ships. You know, ships that can carry liquid hydrogen at volume. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about it. Well, it's a bit like LNG, but it's a lot colder than LNG. It's minus two hundred fifty three degrees centigrade. So, it's it, it's got some fresh challenges that LNG um, uh, just didn't have, um, and you know. LNG had to start somewhere in the same way liquid hydrogen will start uh, is starting now as well. But we're probably a decade plus away from long distance shipment of liquid hydrogen. Um, but in the meantime, pipelines um, using existing pipelines, converting natural gas pipelines where it makes sense, making sure the materials of construction um, are compatible with hydrogen, and uh, then uh, where where to fill in the gaps in between the pipeline networks use liquid hydrogen. Um, so we think we can bring, you know, we started in liquid hydrogen probably the 60s in a, in a big way when we were looking to supply NASA among others with hydrogen. Um, so we built quite a very, I think we're the largest producer of liquid hydrogen around the world today and have some key technology around liquid fraction. So we're kind of looking to leverage that, that experience we've built, again, with gray hydrogen over the years. We can do that for both uh, green and blue going forward. So again, pipelines... It makes a lot of sense to use pipelines where you can, where you can't, start using liquid, and eventually start looking at liquid hydrogen for long-distance transportation as well. So that's that's how we see it kind of developing. Yeah, it's very interesting, and let's dive into that a little deeper. Okay. So on pipelines, so you mentioned yeah. a couple of options, right? If we have hydrogen pipelines available, great. Yes. An alternative is blending um hydrogen into natural gas pipelines. Another yeah. option is uh, converting natural gas pipelines into hydrogen. And I guess the last yeah. option is building new hydrogen yeah. pipelines. Yes. What do you see there as like best solutions or how do you think this is this will play out in the future? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we're looking to transition away from natural gas to hydrogen. So at some point there'll be, there'll be dis- underutilized natural gas grid and so we can just convert that to hydrogen where where it makes sense, where, again, the materials of construction allow for that. Um, in the interim, you can start looking at blending hydrogen into the grid. Um, you, you hit kind of a bit of a challenge when you get about 10 or 15% because then um, some of the end users may not be able to handle that because hydrogen has a lot of different flame characteristics than natural gas. So if, you, if you're blending hydrogen into natural gas and just using natural gas for heating, uh, but a certain amount, you have to start changing out the burners and things like that. So that's kind of a, a natural a natural limit, I guess, on blending. Um, you know, we, we've also developed some technology where you can extract hydrogen from a blend in a pipeline as pure hydrogen. So that's also one potential option going forward. But um, you know, you've probably seen in Europe the you know the hydrogen backbone being talked about, how that's going to be, and I think that's going to be a mixture of new pipe and converted pipe as well. So I think you know you start to see that kind of um, as the way of uh, getting hydrogen out into different industrial sectors you know, as well as um, consumer sectors. Um, you know, and then maybe you'll start building next to pipelines regional liquefaction facilities then to be able to do the last mile or the last 100 kilometers, if you like. Um, so we see 
uh, you know, pipelines playing a, playing a big role in the future as they do today. You know, in the industry today, um, the refineries and chemical plants, you know, they tend to be in clusters, and they tend to be they're usually a hydrogen pipeline connecting them all together as well. But like a utility um, today, as we go beyond just refining and chemicals, as the end users, we'll start to see new clusters and new networks developing as well. And I think they'll lean heavily on the existing natural gas infrastructure to, to do that to get started mm-hmm. right because building out a completely new infrastructure in parallel with natural gas obviously isn't that yeah. isn't an easy task Great. that's right and then let's talk a bit more about that long uh, mm-hmm. uh long distance transport uh, especially right. for ocean you talked about liquefying hydrogen so the key yeah. challenge there is that because hydrogen is a very effective gas you need to go yeah. to very low temperatures minus yeah. 250 degrees celsius to liquefy it right yeah. Yeah. so I'm hearing a lot of potential challenges related to boil-off. I'm curious yes. to hear your thoughts on that. And also curious to hear your thoughts on uh, comparing liquefying hydrogen for that long-distance transport versus using hydrogen derivatives to um, enable that oh. transport, like liquid organic uh, carriers, ammonia, et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting question because we could spend probably all the podcast talking about this. Um but you know, when you when you look at um, to use liquid hydrogen, the technology exists today. But you know, I think we we have the world's largest liquefiers, about thirty five tons in capacity. What we're looking at to have a viable uh, export business built around liquid hydrogen, you need to be doing five hundred, a thousand tons a day of liquefaction. So you need to build that capability of these very large liquefiers. And we, you know, we've, we've done the feasibility, feasibility studies around four or five hundred ton a day liquefiers, which we think will be the base going forward. But you also then need to have the ships to be able to handle, you know, five thousand tons of liquid hydrogen. You need very large storage tanks to handle the liquid hydrogen at both ends of the, of the chain, both of the export terminal as well as the import terminal. Um, that's just, you know, it's just a case of, you know. Uh, build building building out that infrastructure. It's going to look quite a little bit of new technology, I think, too. But I think for the most part, it exists. We just need to scale up. Um, when you talk about boil off, um, you know, as with with LNG, with boil off, you can liquefy it, put it back into the the tank, or you can use it as fuel on the ship, for instance. Um, you know, uh, you know, and also you can look at um, uh, improving insulation and reducing heat loss to minimize boil off. Um, but um, so we you know, we don't necessarily see boil off as a, maybe the, the significant issue as as others do. And we think it's manageable with uh, with the t- with technology to keep that down to uh, to a minimum amounts. Um, and we expect to see that going forward. And you know, when you look at other other forms of moving hydrogen, you know, with liquid organic hydrogen carriers, for instance, um, interesting concept, but. I think on a on a weight basis, it's like about six percent hydrogen. So for every you know every thousand tons of um, you know uh, uh, liquid organic hydrogen carry, you really get sixty tons of hydrogen. Then you have to you know you got this kind of loop where you're moving a lot of mass around with that much hydrogen. Um, there's other other carriers such as ammonia. We think there's, um, ammonia has a has a role to play. Um, you know because you can build off the existing infrastructure for ammonia that there is today. Um, something like about 20 million tons a year uh, ammonia is moved around the world today by ship. Um, so we think we, you could you could leverage that capability to move move ammonia. Of course, you know, ammonia is made with 
hydrogen and nitrogen, you know, just simple, you know, Harbour Bosch process. Um, so if you use clean hydrogen, you end up with clean ammonia. And then you can move that over a long distance using the existing supply chain. Now, maybe where we differ from some in the industry is we view ammonia as a great energy carrier, not necessarily a great hydrogen carrier. So, you know, make use of the either renewable energy or the uh, you know, low carbon hydrogen produced, you know, blue hydrogen produced from natural gas with sequestration. Make use of ammonia to transport that from those regions where you can produce it economically, you know, whether it's uh, US, US Gulf Coast, Middle East, Australia, Chile, etc. Move that ammonia to where it's needed in Europe or Australia, so in Japan or, or Korea. Move it to those locations, but then find uses for the ammonia as ammonia. So use it, you know, there's, there's three big sectors or a couple of big sectors. One of them is using it um, in the power sector, so direct combustion. And in Japan, they're looking at co-firing with coal. There's some work around using uh, ammonia directly in a gas turbine. Um, and then there'll, there'll, there'll probably be some applications for cracking ammonia back to hydrogen as well. But our perspective is if you're going to go to the trouble of you know, thermodynamically as well as economically of producing ammonia, find uses for that ammonia before you convert it back to hydrogen. Um, in those cases where you uh, where you, you still want to convert it back to hydrogen, we're, we're looking at some technology to make to allow that to, to be done more efficiently. Uh, with, you know, we're doing a pilot project, developing some pilot technology we're going to be implementing in northern Germany on a you know, pilot cracker to look at different catalysts. One of them is coming from uh, Aramco. They, they think they have some novel technology. We're going to look at that as well as other technologies to see if we can come with a better way of cracking ammonia. But first of all, use ammonia for those applications where you can use it directly and that way, it's a vector for low carbon hydrogen energy, not necessarily low carbon hydrogen. Another application, methanol. You know, if you can use e-methanol, use you know again use clean hydrogen in the production of methanol. Just, the issue there seems to be finding CO2 because if you're going to make methanol, you need a carbon molecule. Um, CO2. So if you can take hydrogen and CO2 and make methanol, uh, that's a great way of using clean hydrogen, also making use of method of CO2 that would allow you benton. And particularly if you can find bio-CO2, if you can find CO2 that's produced um, as a result of biomass combustion, etc., that would be the best um, best way of making methanol, clean methanol. And we see applications for that as an alternate shipping fuel as well, low carbon or low carbon intensity emission uh, shipping fuel, just as the way that ammonia is. So, so yeah, again, we, we see a lot of opportunities for being able to move hydrogen long distances, liquid hydrogen in the future, 10, 15 years from now. You can do it today as ammonia. Uh, you can do it today as methanol. Um, but there are some some barriers to that at the moment, but we, we feel they're overcomable. Mm-hmm. So another way to reduce the cost of transportation for hydrogen mm-hmm. is thinking about hydrogen supply chains in a more regional way, right? What if we can make sure that production, distribution, and usage is kind Mm. of co-located from a regional perspective? And that's what the U.S. hydrogen hubs are are, are optimizing for. So there were 20 proposals submitted for the final application, and Linda is an industry partner in in at least three, if if I'm correct. The Gulf Coast, Arizona, Great Lakes... Could you tell us a little bit more about how these hydrogen hubs will, will help us and, and why and how Linde is, is betting on them and contributing to them? Yeah. And, you know, as you said, we led 
three um, hubs, um, submission of three hubs, and we participated in support letters, et cetera, and a number of others. So it's, it's a great way, and it's a, it's a great idea of the, you know, the DOE there to to kind of um, try and catalyze the growth of these regional hubs, because you know, when, when you look at the U.S., you look at the U.S. Gulf Coast, that is um, kind of a hub that grew organically, driven by demand and um, obviously then supply coming in to, 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 to meet that. So what the DOE is doing is trying to um, you know, catalyze and accelerate the growth of new hubs in new areas for new applications. So it's not no longer from refining in chemicals, it may be in steel, it may be in um, fuel switching, et cetera. But so, so it also brings together interested parties who um, may be on the production side and demand side as well. Um, so we'll start to see new hubs being, being developed around the, uh, around the country. Um, you know, we, the, the three we led, one was going to be uh, you know, nuclear, using nuclear power uh, for renewable production, one was going to be using uh, you know, solar uh, hydrogen production, that one was going to be based around uh, CCS. And so, you know, different, different ways of uh, producing hydrogen there. So, um, you know, I guess we're very um, interested to see who gets selected and which hubs get uh, promoted going forward. But um, we, we see them as a great, great way of kind of establishing new hubs more quickly and uh, developing new hubs more quickly and getting a lot of interested parties into the same room to do that. And so that's why, you know, we've been excited to participate in these and, and as I said, lead three of them. Um, and so, again, fingers crossed, we're hoping that uh, we get uh, get selected to move forward and get funded. That's indeed such a great way to, to avoid the chicken and the egg and, and yeah. kind of, um, move the industry forward. So we'll, we'll be on the lookout for more news on those uh, soon. Yeah. You collaborated with Reuters on a white paper where you talked yeah. about different key applications for hydrogen. Yes. Your, your number two that you mentioned was heavy-duty transport, and I believe our users are familiar with that. Oh, that was the first one. The second one you mentioned was on secondary industry on-site users, and number three was about regulatory-driven use cases. Personally, less familiar with those. Uh, can, okay. can you tell us a little bit more about these specific use cases? Yeah, I mean, and I think the secondary use cases, I and mean, I think what we we're meaning is where there's a small demand, on, small on-site demand, like in an electronics application or something, semiconductor manufacturing. Putting a small electrolyzer on-site um, is fairly straightforward. It, it, it's not we're not talking about you know gigascale or, or major um, electrolysis facilities where you need a whole new infrastructure and power system, etc. But you can get started with a small electrolyzer to meet small needs of these kind of secondary users, if you like. That, that was kind of what we meant, meant by that. And then regulation-driven use cases, you know, particularly Europe with the Red 2, a lot of pressure to reduce CO2 footprints. And so it really is regulation is driving it. Also regulation and also uh, um, uh, costs associated with ETS, et cetera, and meeting, uh, you know, when you're starting to, when there's various cap-and-trade systems having to start paying for emissions, that's really leading to, uh, you know, uh, is creating creating a bit more of an economic case for making that switch sooner, because um, unfortunately, you know, uh, clean hydrogen um, is going to be more expensive to produce than uh, traditional hydrogen. Um, you know, blue is you know, particularly in the US, blue is getting very close to the cost of grey production, but green is um, you know still higher than blue. So while 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 we're seeing you know, costs costs get reduced based on the you know scale, and certainly in the US, where the IRA is helping to bring costs down as well. We're still looking at you know 
uh, clean hydrogen be more expensive than its grey alternative. And so really applications where there's the costs associated with CO2 emissions, um, it helps kind of make the economic case for conversion to a cleaner, clean capturing CO2 or using a cleaner hydrogen. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what was that's what we meant by that that uh, use case. And as you said, mobility is probably the first one to move, and uh, we're seeing that today in you know heavy on the heavy duty sec- duty sector in particular. Um, you know, trucks, buses, trains, ferries. You know, that's where we see I think and hydrogen being the first the first sector to really to really move and um I think we started even one we thought maybe a few years away still making green steel, clean steel, we're starting to see some interesting uh, movements in that sector as well, which I think is all gonna stimulate and, and uh you know increase demand for clean hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So you have a good perspective on what hydrogen customers are looking for. Green yeah. hydrogen is still more expensive today. The DOE yeah. target is $1 kilogram, but I think we're not yet there. Uh, indeed, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act comes with a up to $3 per kilogram tax credit, which, which yeah. will definitely help. What, what do you see as a willingness to pay for green hydrogen uh, for these kind of first mover customers? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, I think with all clean clean hydrogen derivatives, the, the challenge is finding uh, off-takers, finding off-takers willing to pay a premium. Um, and again, that's why, you know, you need some other incentives such as, you know, we talked about um, uh, you know, various uh, CO2 emission taxes and things like that, or or incentives to help reduce costs. That's, you, you still got a bridge, there's still the, the gap that we need to be bridging with um, with incentives or, or, or costs. So what we're seeing is, um, you know, maybe you know, as we've seen, certainly in the last year or so, saw hydrocarbon costs increase. The uh, the gap between clean hydrogen and some of the uh, uh, hydrocarbon end use has narrowed. It's starting to widen again now. But you know, we we do see a case for certainly in the US right now a lot of interest in export based projects around producing clean ammonia for export to Asia and also to Europe. So we're seeing seeing those start to move, but you know mobility and kind of export those are the the, the big ones at the moment. Uh, we see some interest in using hydrogen as um, in the power sector. Obviously, it doesn't make sense to <laughs> you know to use power to make it hydrogen by electrolysis just to make power again. But um, we, we we see hydrogen as a way of storing energy. So when renewable energies are available. In excess, demand isn't there. We can use that power to make hydrogen, and the hydrogen can then be used to make power when there's a shortage of power. So we see that a lot of interest in that s- sector as well. But again, uh, there's still 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 the challenge when it comes to customers willing to pay a significant premium for clean hydrogen versus uh, conventional hydrogen or conventional energy, if you like. On that note, as you mentioned, the energy mm-hmm. landscape is really changing at light speed, and and this comes with the need for incumbents and established companies to, to reinvent themselves. Yeah. Um, as VP of Clean Energy at Linde, you're very much at the forefront of the transition um, mm. at, at the company. It's it's exciting, but I can see that also as a challenging process right. and something that doesn't happen overnight. What right. what principles do you rely on as a leader guiding uh, the organization through this transition? Yeah, I mean, obviously any transition comes with challenges, right? And um, but this is this is a little bit different now in that for the most part, I think everybody's behind the idea of decarbonization and sees the need to decarbonize um you know given given the challenges we face with uh, with climate change. I think it, you know it's uh, 
is it's not really a debate anymore. So you know, particularly with um, the wider community and new employees coming in, that they're very excited to see that you know, Lindy is focused on clean energy and helping to to solve the energy, the, the the climate, the climate challenge. So I think in some ways it's an easier change to to um, to to get support to get people behind you uh, when when you you have on the other side of it. Obviously, a lot of a lot of good being done for the uh, well, society as a whole. You know, we, you know, we've always talked about in, in Lindy that you know most of our products, a lot of our products, help drive efficiency and help improve um, operations for for consumers and, and companies. So, um, you know, when you look at our, um, you know, when you, I think it's our motto. I think we have on our on our cards, right, which is um, you know making our world more productive. Um, so I think we we kind of believe that um, that's, that's a real kind of driving force behind Lindy, and we see you know clean energy is just a, a key element of that. And uh, so it's it's a change which is not requiring a lot of uh, we don't have to doesn't require a lot of should we say persuasion that this is a good path to be on and that we should be looking to transition away from gray hydrogen towards cleaner hydrogen, uh, gray and blue. And also to to look at the carbon capture opportunities, and as I said, particularly with new employees, uh, you know, new generation coming into industry, they 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 view this as being very positive. And I, I would have to say, a lot of people who've been in the industry for a long time also view this as being positive too. Um, so it's not not as difficult a challenge, should we say, as some other ch- other changes which have to be driven through the organization. That is a very powerful message, David, and also makes me very hopeful for the future. I'd like to end this podcast with a question that we ask every guest. Sure. Uh, I have the strong belief that we all stand on the shoulders of giants who came before us. And to mm-hmm. use the words of Isaac Newton, it's standing on their shoulders that makes us see further. Right. And in that context and on that note, who inspires you? Who inspires you most and, and why? Right. It's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, and I don't think it's a shoulder. I think there's been many shoulders that um, I've stood on over the years, right? Um, yeah, when you when it's going back to you know, a primary school, you know, there's teachers that inspire you, that kind of um, show some belief in you, and uh, um, all the way to you know primary school to high school to university, etc. So a lot of teachers along the way um, who have kind of helped me uh, make that transition, you know. I could go through a lot of names here, you know, people like Mrs. O'Connell or Mr. Kime in Prime School, uh, you know, um, people like uh, Mr. Walker in high school, uh, Professor Higgs at university, and then coming into unit, coming into the working field, you know, as a, a your first job kind of thing. Yeah, I think you always have a bit of that imposter syndrome, right? As you come, each, each transition from one school or uh, one job to another, you always have that feeling that, you know, Am I really up to this? But then you have people who believe in you and really help you, um, give you that confidence to kind of, um, you know, you know, climb, climb, you know, meet the challenge, if you like, and excel. So, um, yeah, and certainly when I came from the UK to the US, that was a big step as well. And so my first, first managers I had at work here in the US, you know, people like, um, you know, Ted Polites or Ron Deeble, people like that. And, uh, then, you know, as I moved from a technical research role into a business role, some of the business managers I worked with who, you know, had an inspirational approach to, to business, um, you know, people like Ralph Davies, Ken Spall, people like that, 
there was a so again a lot of shoulders probably a lot more I haven't named here as well but a lot of people along the way have kind of helped and then uh, I think um, probably the most important of all you know people these days talk a lot about work-life balance but that's always difficult to achieve uh, and so I think a lot of times some sacrifices have to be made and uh, a lot of times that's the family your family that bears that challenge right so my wife and children I think um, would uh, I would like to call out as being shoulders I've they've really helped support me along the, on the journey here and I think it's, it's really interesting now is people's question about um, you know accepting change etc it's interesting my children now are a lot more interested in the work I do than they were ever before you know the idea that the work I'm doing now in clean energy is helping um, address climate change is um, I, th- I think they see they feel a lot more empathy for uh uh, the work I'm doing now and interest in the work I'm doing than they ever did before in the old traditional chemical industry. So, um, very long answer um, to a short question. And uh, again, so many names I could have mentioned, so many shoulders I could have talked about standing on, but uh, it's been uh, that's got me to uh, where I am today, basically. Many, many shoulders indeed. David, mm-hmm. uh, a true privilege to learn from you today. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs>